This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. I've said a couple of times that today I would speak about gratitude, but I'm going to get there by an indirect route. I've been thinking about the story of the Buddha for no particular reason, but realizing as I'm thinking about it how often we get it wrong, both as listeners and as the person telling it. And I know that I have... I have been guilty of that myself. So I wanted to focus on just one part of it. The story, as I think we all know, is that the Buddha was kept in his palace and he wasn't allowed to see the outside world because uh, when he was born, a wise man had come and looked at him and, and foretold that he would either become a great leader of men or a great spiritual leader. And his father, not really being able to comprehend what it might mean to become a spiritual leader, tried to steer him away from that and kept him in a very kind of sanitized world. He was not exposed to uh, the discomforts of ordinary life. But he got restless and he wanted to see outside the walls. And so the story goes that his father arranged for him to, to be part of a procession that went through the town. And they tried to kind of clean up the town ahead of time. I think of this story from time to time whenever we have something like the Olympics or, or some conference. Because we hear these horrible stories about, you know, in Rio de Janeiro that one day homeless people are gone, right? That's this story. So the Buddha went through with his attendant, but they couldn't quite perfectly clean up the town. And so he saw four things that radically changed his life. The first was that he saw sickness. And, and I think very often we assume or we're told that he saw someone suffering from leprosy because it's so unmistakable, right? I can, at least three people in this room are sick right now, but looking at us is not going to spur anyone to realization. But, but there are some kinds of, uh, physical suffering that you cannot not see. So maybe that's what he saw. The second that he saw was someone who was much, much older than him. And the third was he saw a dead body. Uh, sometimes it's said it was a, you know, a little mini procession of people carrying a dead body. Maybe he actually saw the funeral pyre which is not an impossible thing to see even today in India. 
And then after seeing these three things and recognizing and being told by his attendant in each case that everyone is subject to these same things, that everyone is subject to sickness, old age, and death, then he saw an ascetic, a wandering yogi. And these four sights led him to leave the palace and leave his family and disappear into the woods to become an ascetic himself. I think when we hear this story, we're quick in a way to mythologize it and say, can you believe this guy? You know, living in this palace, he had no idea. How could you not know? But I think that that's a... If we tell the story in that way, we miss the critical points. There's so many things to this story that are so fascinating. One, of course, is the father, who, even though he himself did not want his son to pursue a spiritual life or necessarily understand what that could have meant, he had the remarkable insight to recognize those things that spur people toward traditional spiritual practice. He knew exactly what not to show. That's very interesting. It's also interesting to me to imagine that part of the Buddha's life and what must have been such a revelation to him after he left was that during his time in the palace, he was never exposed to anyone old. He never saw old people, which means he never interacted with old people. And when he left, he could begin having those encounters. And it must have been earth-shattering to him. Dogen is very clear that if you want to realize, if you want to understand realization, you have to understand impermanence. And if you're looking for people who understand impermanence, look to people who are much older than yourself. I also think it's interesting, thinking of old age, that he was, the Buddha was pushing 30 when he had this encounter, when he, he saw these things. Which means, even though we, we kind of, the story hinges on his getting out of the palace walls, it was inevitable. Because he was just about to start witnessing the decline of his own body. Right? You can go through your 20s and not really grasp old age. Because at least until your mid-twenties, and if you, if you live a healthy life, you can just be getting better and better and better. <laughs> right? You're getting stronger. You're getting faster. You seem to bounce back from things very easily. I know that when I was a young man, there was nothing I could not eat. It really didn't matter. I could eat a, a tire. And it would... <laughs> And it would sustain me. I could, I could process that. You know. But I think it's a very common experience that around 30, 
you know, the, your skin starts to change, right? You aren't quite as smooth in the face as you were. And you wake up some mornings, and waking up suddenly is not so easy. And you start thinking, maybe I should go to bed early tonight. <laughs> and maybe you've never had that idea in your life. Right? So he was close. It didn't hinge on this day. Because a year or two years after this moment, he would have begun to see the things that he had to see. The point where we really get this story wrong is to imagine, is when we imagine that we are not exactly like him. In all of human history, there has never been an opportunity like there is today to live in a sterile world. We're encouraged to do it. We are not encouraged to see things for what they are. We're terrified of illness. Not just of illness, but of the experience of illness. And so we don't just aggressively treat disease, we aggressively treat symptoms. Right, And when that's too aggressive, we get medication that treats the side effects of the medication that's treating symptoms. The idea being that even if you're unavoidably ill, you shouldn't ever feel ill. We do these things in the name of quality of life. But when we say quality of life, we have a very specific and very narrow vision of what a quality life might be. And in a quality life, your joints do not hurt. In a quality life, you do not feel nauseous. And we have the capacity in many cases to keep those things at bay. Far beyond what we were ever capable of before. And I don't mean to suggest that we shouldn't. There are people whose lives are, are radically transformed by the ability to, to step out of their, the narrowness of their illness, thanks to certain treatments, and actually focus on the relationships in their life. So I don't mean to say we shouldn't, but I, I also think, you know, when I get a cold, I'm awfully quick to reach for something that eradicates the symptoms of a cold. And a cold isn't much. So how prepared am I to deal with something much, 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 much bigger? We're always told that 40 is the new 30 or 50 is the new 40 or whatever that is. We keep moving that line. There's a magazine on the stands right now that shows a a much, much older man skateboarding. He's in the air. And we're supposed to be excited about this and say, "This this is the new old age. But that's not the new old age for many people. We have the option, living the way that we do, moving away from the places where we were born, 
living in communities that we create, we have the option until we reach old age to never have re any real contact with old age. There's nothing in our culture that requires us to interact with people who are on that side of the arc of their life. We have to choose it. We have to deliberately go out and seek it. That is a new thing for us. People used to live with their grandparents. They were born into an understanding of the inevitable. And we don't see much death. We hear about it. But we don't get to see it. In the U.S. at one point, and I don't know the status of this anymore, it was actually illegal in the news to show images of bodies being brought back from war. Because that would make us feel bad. That's absurd. We have to face death. We have to see it. I don't mean by that, by the way, that we should see simulations of death. Spending the weekend watching all the Saw movies is not, is not relevant to this conversation from my perspective. That's some sort of catharsis. I'm talking about actual death. I have no idea how many funerals I've performed in Japan. I, I lost count a long time ago. And the first few, it just happened that they were all bodies that had been cremated ahead of time, ahead of the funeral. And I was very nervous about my role. I was still learning how to do it, and that was my focus. I hit the bell here, and I offer incense here, and, and I was just trying to stay on top of it. And then one time I went, and uh, it, the way that funerals are conducted typically is... Um, they're rarely done in temples anymore. They're done in funeral parlors, and the priests come in. And there's room for the priests, and they sit there and they eat a special meal that's always a vegetarian meal before they go out. And, and it's, it's kind of this ritual act. Well, one day I showed up, and it was a particularly small place, and they were having another funeral just before, and they needed a place to put the body. And so the body was right next to where I was eating. And it was the casket was exposed, so his face was literally next to my plate. And I sat and I ate that meal and I watched the face of this dead man, and realized that I had never once really considered what I was doing. And after that, I saw a lot of different versions of funerals over time. There were some in which people reach in and, and everyone places their hand on the head of the, of the deceased. You have to touch him. You have to spend some time. This happens less and less, but traditionally in Japan, a family, a family takes on the burden of, of washing and dressing the body of the deceased. So they spend a night in a room with that person. 
handling the person and looking at the person. And by the time the sun rises, they have gone through stages of grief in a very efficient and very proactive way. It's a powerful thing to do, and we are not invited to do it. So part of what I want to say is that we're not, with the story, being invited to say, oh, you know, he was so clueless. He finally caught on. We're being given a very specific recipe for entering into an understanding of impermanence. And the amazing thing is, and this is where we come to gratitude the first time, is that all of those ingredients are within us. Because we're subject to all these things. We all get sick, and we all, if we're lucky, grow old. And we will all die. And we can be so grateful that all the things we need are right in front of us all the time. Nothing is lacking. Nothing is missing. The benefit the Buddha had was that he got to receive it as such a shock. Whereas we have to make a choice to open our eyes. That's part one. Part two is about the fourth thing that the Buddha saw. Because you need four. When we talk about renunciation, we can talk about it in a lot of different ways. And I think sometimes we kind of cop out. right? And we go directly to some sort of abstraction of renunciation. We should always, always remember to consider renunciation in its most literal sense. The person that the Buddha saw was someone who owned nothing. Who had stepped away from the webs of entanglements that keep us distracted. It's a very powerful thing to do. And we can lose sight of that or we can minimize that or say that we don't need to do that exactly. But for the purposes of this conversation, I want to open up the idea of renunciation and offer that renunciation at its heart is about choosing a different direction, a direction that is not comfortable, a direction that is in service of something greater, whatever that may be. And it doesn't look the same for each person. I don't eat meat, but the fact is that I love it. I love the taste, and I love the smell. And though now I've been doing it so long that I would be a fool to call it a hardship, it is a category of renunciation, because I'm, I'm choosing not 
to take in something that I want. On the other hand, for me, in my case, I also don't drink alcohol, and I never have. And because I never have, I never developed a taste for it. So I think it smells terrible, right? And so sometimes people say, oh, you don't drink, that's so great. But it's not renunciation. There's not even an ounce of renunciation in that choice. I'm simply not drinking the thing I don't want to drink. Right? I get no points for that. <laughs> right. So, it's critical that we look around in our lives and find people who are choosing something based not on their own comfort and not on their own tastes, but on the service of a greater good. And study those people. And then to take up that path ourselves. Not only because all four of these need to be internalized to be understood, but because if these are the ingredients that people need in order to come to a realization of impermanence, if people need all four, most of the people you know are only at best being exposed to three. Where are the renunciates of the world? They're there. But they're relatively few in number, as they always have been. So if you want to be part of the solution as presented in this story. That means that you also have to become someone to whom other people can look for that example in whatever it is. Whatever it is that you choose. Whatever it is that you offer. Whatever it is that you let go of. People need that. They need to see that. They need to be able to look up from the horror and the despair of sickness, old age, and death and recognize that there is an alternative way of living your life. If the Buddha had not seen that fourth person, I'm not sure what might have happened. Because the first three don't offer a path out. But in the fourth, he found the germ of an answer. Something that he could follow. Something that he could explore. Gratitude. Real gratitude. 
is not a celebration of abundance. Gratitude is a recognition that we have what we need. That nothing is missing. And if we look to this story for the list of things we need, we see nothing is missing. I believe that. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.